Sin does not change the plan. It may delay the plan, but it does not change the plan. In the end, God has what God willed. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The plans of God are stronger than the sins of men and women. What a wonderful truth that is. We're going to be covering two chapters in the book of Exodus today, so we need to get right at it. Here to walk us through them is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 36. In many commentaries, the last five and a half chapters of the book of Exodus receive almost no comment at all. And that's largely because these chapters are almost word-for-word duplications of the content provided in chapters 25 to 31. The only difference being that in chapter 25 through to chapter 31, God is giving instructions, whereas in these chapters, Moses is reporting the execution of those instructions. But the content is basically the same. So, for example, most commentaries explain the bronze altar in chapter 27, when it's being introduced and when its construction is being commanded. But then in chapter 38, when it is actually being built according to those instructions, they tend not to say much of anything at all. You might wonder then, why bother reproducing these chapters? Why not simply say, they built the tabernacle according to all the instructions that they had been given, and then the Lord descended upon the tabernacle in a cloud? Why not skip all this material in the middle that we have seen and commented on before. J. Alec Machir gives probably the best explanation I've ever encountered. He acknowledges that this material is, in fact, largely duplicate material. But then he says, but this precisely is the point. The Lord does not change. That strange man, Balaam, was right when he said, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Numbers 23, 19. Nothing, of course, justifies our sin, but not even the grossest rebellions of his people can deflect the Lord from his purposes. Such is God's overruling sovereignty in power and mercy that without besmirching his holiness or condoning or in any way accommodating himself to the moral calamity of what Israel did, the disaster of the golden calf became the occasion when Israel learned the sinfulness of sin, the exceeding graciousness of grace, and the inflexible determination of the Lord to fulfill his stated purposes. Therefore, The Lord still intended to indwell his people. And therefore, too, the tabernacle specifications are repeated without alteration or adjustment. Closed quote. I think that is exactly right. The overall feel of this movement from a great promise to a great plan to a massive disaster to a complete reconciliation and then back on to plan and the complete and perfect fulfillment of promise convey a reminder to the reader of the overruling, gracious 
sovereignty of Almighty God. Sin does not change the plan. It may delay the plan, but it does not change the plan. In the end, God has what God willed. It was God's plan to dwell in the midst of his people. And nothing, not even the sin and apostasy of his people, is going to change that plan. So, by means of glorious mediation and fervent intercession, and because of God's sovereign grace and mercy, all has been restored. The plan will go forward. And now, all of the people involved will have a fresh appreciation of the seriousness of sin and a deepened understanding of the patience and kindness of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Now, here we meet another major theme in this last section of the book. One of the things that you will hear over and over again over the next five chapters is that everything was done in accordance with the Lord's commandments. In fact, some version of the phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses, appears seven times in chapter 39 alone, and then another seven times in chapter 40 alone. So, again and again and again, we're being told that now, on the other side of the golden calf disaster, the people are very careful in their obedience to God's word. And there's something of a life lesson in there for us. Very often, without ever being the author of our sin, God nevertheless ordains or permits a season of failure for his people. However you want to understand that. He gives us enough rope to hang ourselves with. He lets go of his restraining power, just enough to let us fall face first into the ditch that we've been leaning towards, not to kill us, but to educate us, to discipline us. I always think of the story of the mother from back in the day who caught her teenage daughter smoking cigarettes. The mom said to the girl, so you want to smoke cigarettes, do you? Well, then you can smoke the whole pack. And she locked her in the outhouse until she had smoked the whole pack. And then she let her out green faced and covered in her own vomit and fully committed to a smoke free life moving forward. That's exactly what we're seeing here. God gave them over to their sin and it scared them. It scared them straight as it were. And now on the other side of that near disaster, everyone is walking careful and being very precise in their obedience to the Lord's instructions. Sometimes that is exactly how God parents us. He lets us come face to face with who we are apart from his restraining and enlivening power. We come face to face with our own sin and stupid, and we are chastened. And generally, what follows is a renewed commitment to humility and very careful obedience. Thanks be to God. We jump back into the story at verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. 
and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave the command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. This, of course, is a wonderful story about the glad and generous contributions of God's people to the building of the tabernacle. R. Allen Cole says efficiently here, this is the typical reaction of God's people to the saving grace and forgiving love of God. I think that's exactly right. People who have been saved tend to give at one level, but those who've been saved and then forgiven of a gross apostasy or defection tend to give and serve at a whole other level. The idea being that the more you have experienced of God's love and mercy, the more generously and expressively you want to respond. We see the exact same pattern in the New Testament. In Luke 7, when the sinful woman was responding to Jesus in ways that Simon the Pharisee thought were quite excessive, Jesus said, He who is forgiven little loves little. Obviously, that was a rebuke to Simon. He didn't respond to Jesus very well because he had no real concept of his own sin. Therefore, the mercy of God in Christ meant very little to him. But it obviously meant a great deal to this sinful woman. As now, on the other side of the golden calf disaster, it meant a great deal to the people of Israel as a whole. That's the point. Those who are forgiven little love little. And those who are forgiven much love much. We jump back into the story at verse 8. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. He made 50 loops on the one curtain and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with clasps. So the tabernacle was a single whole. As we get into the narrative of the actual manufacturing of the tabernacle complex, you will now begin to notice that theme of precise repetition that I mentioned earlier. Douglas Stewart, for example, says here, this paragraph duplicates in past tense fulfillment what chapter 26, verses 1 to 6, commanded in the imperative, closed quote. And in general, that's going to be the pattern now until the end of chapter 39. Things that were said in the imperative as commands, that is, in chapters 25 to 31, will now be repeated as completed actions. Now, there's the odd new detail here and there. But by and large, 
This material is all simply reformatted in terms of verb tense and represented in the order in which it was actually constructed. Verse 14. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together, that it might be a single whole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. This section corresponds to the instructions given in chapter 26, verses 7 to 14. This is the outer weather cover. It is what the people would have seen from the outside. Verse 20. Then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus. 20 frames for the south side, and he made 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, he made 20 frames and their 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle, westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. And they were separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, under every frame, two bases. This section represents the fulfillment of what was commanded in chapter 26, verses 15 to 25. Thus, the frames and their bases were completed. Verse 31. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end halfway up the frames. And he overlaid the frames with gold and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. This section corresponds to the instructions given in chapter 26, verses 26 to 29, regarding the crossbars on the frame of the tent proper. Verse 35. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. With cherubim skillfully worked into it, he made it. And for it he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold, and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework, 
and its five pillars with their hooks. He overlaid their capitals, and their fillets were of gold, but their five bases were of bronze. These verses correspond to the commands given in chapter 26, verses 31 to 37, and refer, of course, to the manufacturing of the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Now, listen, it is very easy to get lost in the details here, particularly as modern readers. We want to study these details, but more importantly, we want to make sure that we have seen and appreciated the general pattern. Remember, the tabernacle is the greatest of all visual aids in the Old Testament. So we always want to make sure that we are zooming out and thinking in terms of the big picture. J. Alec Machir, again, is helpful here. He says, if we take this passage in Exodus as a pattern, there is a principle of leadership for those so-called and endowed. They should exercise their God-given gifts. Chapter 35, verses 32 to 33 teaching others, chapter 35, verse 34a, and working in a fellowship of leaders, chapter 35, verse 34b, under the word of God, chapter 36, verse 1. For those under such leadership, there is a principle of committed following, involving responsiveness, chapter 36, verse 2, the willing giving of goods, chapter 36, verse 3, and time, chapter 36, verse 4, all again under the word of God, chapter 36, verse 5, closed quote. I think that's a pretty useful summary of the big picture that is emerging in this closing section of the text. The leaders are leading, the people are giving and serving, and all things are being done according to the will and word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, chapter 36 was a relatively short chapter, so we're going to transition right into chapter 37 this morning. Pastor Paul, we'll hand it right back over to you. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 37. I mentioned in the last episode that in most commentaries, chapters 35 through 39 receive almost no comment at all, because most of the content in these chapters essentially duplicates the content received and discussed in chapters 25 to 31. In chapters 25 to 31, God gives instructions to Moses regarding the construction of the tabernacle and its various accoutrements. But then you will recall that the entire project was put in jeopardy by the incident with the golden calf. Initially, after the gross apostasy and idolatry of that experience, it appeared as if God was canceling his order for the tabernacle. He was no longer going to go up in the midst of the people. He was just going to send some kind of warrior angel. But Moses pleads with God to change his mind. He says, if you won't go with us, then we won't go. We don't want power if it does not come with presence. As I said, that prayer of Moses is probably the high water mark of Old Testament piety. What he was saying was that the presence of God was everything. They didn't just want help. They wanted him. They didn't just want the gifts. They wanted the giver. The greatest glory in being the people of God was not the favor or the advantage over enemies. It was God himself. And so God responds to that prayer, and he relents from the punishment he had threatened. And he says that he will go up 
in the midst of them. And so with that, the construction phase of the tabernacle program began in earnest. So these chapters matter, even if they feel weird to us. They would have felt wonderful to the people living through them. Every curtain stitched, every acacia tree harvested, every peg hammered would have reminded the people that a great disaster had been averted and a great and undeserved mercy shown. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side, and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood, and overlaid them with gold, and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. These verses correspond precisely with the instructions given in Exodus 25, 10-15. The only new detail is the fact that it was Bezalel who made the ark. In chapter 25, God told Moses to build the ark. But that doesn't mean that Moses was supposed to be the craftsman. It just means that he was supposed to oversee the project as a whole. And of course, this is the same way that the Bible might say, for example, that King David slew 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Well, we assume that David didn't fight each of those 18,000 Edomites personally, but rather that he oversaw an army which defeated those 18,000 Edomites. So it is here. Moses was in charge. He was the overseer. But now we learn that Bezalel actually did the hands-on work. Verse 10. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense, and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. This section corresponds to the instructions given in Exodus 25, 23-29. You'll remember that all the items in either the Most Holy Place or the Holy Place were overlaid in gold, whereas the items in the outer court were overlaid in bronze. 
So this chapter is describing all the items prepared for the inner two zones, the holy place and the most holy place. The ark was housed in the most holy place. It was the only item in the most holy place. This table, the table used to display the bread of the presence, was on the north side of the holy place, directly across from the golden lampstand, the construction of which is described now in verses 17 to 24. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And he made it seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. This section corresponds to the instructions given in Exodus 25, 31 to 39. The lampstand was placed on the south side of the holy place, directly across from the table displaying the bread of the presence. So as a priest entered the holy place from the eastern side of the tent proper, he would see the table on his right and the lampstand on his left, and directly in front of him, just before the veil through which the high priest might pass into the Holy of Holies, he would see the altar of incense, the construction of which is described now in verses 25 to 28. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit, and its breadth was a cubit. It was square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it and made two rings of gold on it under its molding on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. This section corresponds to the instructions given in Exodus 30, 1-5. Next, we have a brief narrative concerning the preparation of the holy anointing oil used for the priests and tabernacle objects. We see that in verse 29. He made the holy anointing oil also, and the pure fragrant incense, blended as by the perfumer. So while this chapter feels repetitive and perhaps even unnecessary to the modern day reader, it would have absolutely reeked of grace and mercy to its original hearers. Every detail would have been received with rejoicing. The project so nearly abandoned was slowly but surely coming to completion. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but hope restored brings relief and joy to all. Thanks be to God. Amen. 
As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 